Noble Experiment by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 9, 500 miles below the earth with the Mergendorf. When he awoke in the pickup truck, Lorner hovered over him. Brady, she yelled with the sun in back of her flapping hair. Brady felt very contented, almost intoxicated. Another blackout. Same as before? Yes and no. I saw the Mergendorf, he said. The what? I understand it all now. I'm witnessing reality, Lorna. From the past, my past. My ancestor, Hank Brady, encountering an alien race called the Mergendorf. You saw actual aliens? Yeah. I tell you I was in the body of Hank Brady, aboard an alien ship that was brought to an Earth station. They had six such stations on Earth, or Neuralon as they call it. I was wrong and I was right. What? I was right. There are no UFOs because the Mergendorf are the guardians of Earth. And I was wrong because there are indeed aliens. The guardians of what, Brady? She asked. Of Earth, Lorna, he said, sitting up against the side of the truck. I think we both know where the answer lies. The answer to what? The answer to my blackouts and more. The time capsule. The truck had pulled into the breakdown lane and stopped near the first exit. Brady hopped out and walked up to the driver's window. The driver, a tiny lady in her 50s, tipped her giant's hat. You say you're going over to South Pasadena Boulevard, she said. That's right, said Brady. Johnson, Blair, and Yaros. What's the number, Sonny? 415, called Lorna. 415, overdub Brady. Right, right, right. First go to the lot of fountain, we can take the cable up there. Let's see. Right in the corner, Gary, Kearney, and Market. So we find Kearney. No, you find Market. It's right down there. Just ask somebody, anybody, and hop on the cable car. And then to the fountain? Yes, yes, right across from the Sheridan. Just follow Gary up about 20, 25 blocks. I'm not sure. That's South Pasadena. You'll have to find it from there. I have to go. Well, thanks for the ride, said Brady. The lady tipped her hat and the truck sped away. Brady looked down at Warner. You get all that? Yeah, I got it, Brady, she said as they made their way off the highway. Well, I can't remember a damn thing. Something about a fountain. Brady, she frowned. We find Mark. We take the cable to Lotta's fountain, next to Gary. We take Gary, 25 blocks or so to South Pasadena Boulevard. 415, got it? Got it. Less than half an hour later, they were walking north along one of the many hills of the city. They were on South Pasadena Boulevard, a street lined with 19th century homes, almost glued together. The weather was extremely warm and Brady was dripping wet, huffing with his suit coat over his shoulder. Lorna waited up ahead, gazing down one of the streets overlooking the city. When will this end? Yes. Is this South Pasadena Boulevard? She pointed up to the street sign and then put her hands on her hips. I wish you'd let me go into that lawyer's office ahead of you, she told him seriously. You're 12 years old. So? No, 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 said Brady, shaking his head. I'm going right in there and I'm getting that time capsule. But Brady, she said as she gritted her teeth, what about Bishop? What about the FBI? They're not stupid. They must have talked to Johnson. 
I know what I have to do, he said as he crossed the street. That capsule holds the key to all my blackouts. Your blackouts, she said, stopping. You just don't realize you're cracking up, she said. Brady could see a group of cars coming from the next traffic light. He took her by the hand and crossed the street. When they got to the other side, she continued. How do you even know there was a Hank Brady? Don't you think you're just longing for that? How can there be a Mergendorf, spaceships? There are no guardians of Earth. It's all in your mind. Hey, I don't have to listen to you. Oh, you better listen, Brady. I'm forgetting that money if it's in the time capsule. Money for you to leave the country. And then we can get somebody to help you with the blackouts. I am not crazy, Lorna, he said as he walked down the street. Wait, she called and walked alongside of him. Brady, the main objective, despite our different reasons, is to get that capsule. Let me go inside. No, 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 he repeated, not even looking at her as he walked. He began checking the numbers on the building slowly as he reached 415 and looked up at the light blue three-story house of many varying angles. Putting on his suit coat, he climbed up the stairs to the porch. She kept pleading with him, but he opened the door and strut into the lobby. I want to see Mr. Johnson, he said to the woman behind the desk. The woman's face became terrified and her eyes bulged. Maybe she had been warned as she backed up, hitting the chair against the next desk. Brady put his finger into the bottom of his suit coat to pretend that he had a gun. I want to see Mr. Johnson now. I'll, I'll get Mr. Johnson. Hurry up, said Brady as he thrust his finger to the edge of his coat. Mr. Johnson! Mr. Johnson! Seconds later, a bald man with bifocals came out of the back. He looked up from a stack of papers. Yes, friend, what up? Now I see we have company. Damn right you got company, said Brady, trying to act as tough as possible. Well, I've never been caught by a finger there, Mr. Brady, said Johnson. Would be quite a unique experience. Brady looked down at the exposed finger, retracing it with a silly grin. Then he became extremely serious. All right, Johnson. If your concern is with the authorities, Mr. Brady, don't be concerned. I would, however, be concerned with the criminal element. Informants talk, and somebody has talked. I would imagine that Mr. Bishop has already been alerted. What about the capsule, Johnson? That's why we're here, demanded Brady as he stepped up to the lawyer. How do I know you're the real Bill Brady? I have no proof, said Johnson. Brady was in no mood for second guessing. He had convinced himself that he was the rightful owner of that time capsule. Almost frothing at the mouth, he took the older man by the collar. You listen to me, Johnson. I want that capsule right now, so help me God, I'll break your neck. All right, all right said Johnson, choking as his face turned bright red. Lorna, if he makes any calls... She merely stared at him, seemingly unnerved by his frame of mind. Johnson led Brady down to his office. The attorney headed right for his wall safe, twisting the tumblers to the proper sequence as Brady waited anxiously. With the final number set in, he opened the safe and looked over at Brady. Hold it, Johnson, said Brady. He ran over to the safe and stuck his hand inside. Feeling his way around, he grasped what felt like a revolver. Very funny, Johnson, said Brady as he pulled the gun out and pointed it at the attorney. You watch yourself, said the flustered attorney. Brady squinted as he reached in with his other hand, finally pulling out the glass capsule. It was about a foot and a half long and seven inches wide. There were sheets of bright yellow paper that shielded the inner contents. The top was sealed shut with a forced brass lid and wax underneath. 
He stood for moments on end and tried to visualize the contents. Brady! yelled Warner as she sprinted down the hallway. Bishop's guys! In a car! Outside! Go down the back stairs, gulped Johnson, motioning with his head. Brady, the time capsule under one arm and the gun in the other hand, pushed Lorna ahead of him as they leaped down the rear stairs. Brady opened the back door and stepped outside just as one of Bishop's men was coming around the side alley of the house. Brady pulled the trigger of the gun twice and the man fell back to the grass, the blood spurting from his neck. Lorna put her hands to her mouth as Brady ran over and picked up the man's gun. Violence! She said as she froze in horror, only to speak the simple words. Violence begets violence. Brady heard her, but he was too intent on escaping. He shielded her body as they ran into the alleyway and back toward the street paralleling South Pasadena Boulevard. Shots rang out from the rear as two men ran out the back stairs of the attorney's office. Brady and Lorna turned at the corner of the sidewalk onto the next street. He kept between Lorna and the gunman as they crossed the busier roadway. More shots rang out as they reached the other side near a gas station. Brady instinctively fired at the running men. He turned to run again, but stopped where he stood. Lorna had been hit. She lay motionless in a pool of blood, soaking through her yellow sweatshirt. Although the traffic was now snarled and people streamed from their cars, he refused to think of his own safety. The two men, however, were not giving up despite the obstacles. They fired more shots across the street. Some people hit the ground or hid where they could. Brady stuffed the gun in his coat and lifted Lorna up around the pumps and into the station. Minutes passed and the gunfire finally ceased. The sound of an ambulance and police cars could be heard in the distance. Soon the first cruiser skidded into the station and officers pursued the attackers on foot. Several more cruisers appeared and other patrolmen went into the station. Lorna! shouted Brady as the tears flowed down his half-shaven face. Lorna! Lorna! The crowd surrounded the entrance to the station and was a buzz about the shooting. He saved that little girl's life! He saved that little girl's life! said one man. He did, I saw it! said the gasoline attendant as the policeman came to Brady. He carried her right inside under fire! She's gonna die, officer! cried Brady as he looked up. The ambulance is right outside, please, he cautioned, putting his hand on Brady's shoulder. No, she can't die, she can't die, repeated Brady over and over. Paramedics, carrying a folded stretcher, followed a large policeman through the crowd and up to the station. Both policemen moved Brady to the side as a doctor came in from the crowd. He knelt over and listened with a stethoscope. Erratic, I don't like it, he said. Lift her up, now, careful. He said as they hoisted her onto the stretcher and moved her to the door. Everyone back, yelled the officers. Everyone back. I want a blood match right now, said the doctor. And bring her to Seton General, he added, following them into the pathway through the crowd. Brady thought very clearly. It was, without a doubt, his fault for bringing her along anyway. Now it was out of his hands. Brady looked out the station window at four or five cops conferring off to the left near a cruiser. They all turned toward Brady. One of the cops pointed, and he heard him shout. There he is. Somehow they had tracked him down. He turned and ran into the garage. He raced into the bathroom, pushing the window open. He crawled through and out of the station. The hill dropped off dramatically to the rear, and he gained speed as he ran past the dozens of old, rusted cars. In the distance, he could hear the ambulance siren rushing toward the hospital. 
He vaulted over a wooden fence and onto an asphalt parking lot in the next building. Darting quickly, he stayed out of range of the street. His legs began to ache as he kept running, all the while the image of Lorna's body and the stains on the cement were fixated in his mind, and her words played over and over again with each shortened breath. Violence begets violence. Violence begets violence. He came to another road, capsule still under his arm. She could not have survived that shot. His legs began to cramp as they pounded against the pavement, but he kept running blindly. He turned right and ran for a few blocks and then turned left. Time was passing, showing its toll on him as he trudged into Chinatown. Stopping under a sign marked Far Eastern Cuisine, he leaned against a car. His only instinct now was to flee and keep fleeing. The traffic was backed up on the narrow street. He ran through it into a yellow taxi cab on the far side of the street. Where to? asked the driver as Brady just about fell into the back seat. Out, he whispered, his throat dry and tight. Out where, pal? asked the driver, a toothpick between his teeth. Out of the city, east, over the bridge to Oakland. Just keep driving. That's your money, pal. I'll get you on the highway over the bridge, all right? Fine, fine, said Brady as the green light began to appear. He looked up to the stained glass of a Catholic church and felt himself go under. We're below the earth, said Hank Brady as he and the boy walked alongside of the Mergendorf. Yes, 500. It'll only take a few minutes to get there. I suppose you guys ain't no liars if you can build a ship like that, he said, turning to the vessel one more time before they reached the station chute. Let us step inside the chute, said Grock as the gold door opened. They walked into another bullet-shaped room that was much larger than the ship's chute. Compensators on. Ordered Grock. This will prevent any acceleration from lifting us to the top of the room. Just what's down there, Mr. Grock? Asked the boy as the room filled with blue light and they were rocketed into the Earth's interior. I was just going to tell you about that, Commander. Interrupted Paris. But one of the lesser Mergendorfs spoke first. On August 31st, 1992, when Arpeg... Grock seized the young Mergendorf's neck and emitted a humming noise of displeasure from his lips. 1992, that's 116 years from now. What happens then, asked Hank. Nothing, nothing at all, said Grack brashly. That information is classified. The dwarf has spoken out of turn. He will be punished under the laws of Bullrain. Me, responded the other dwarf, his lips now buzzing. Well, the one who has broken the laws by bringing the human on board the ship. It is forbidden. Silence, replied Grok. The attack was my fault. I take full responsibility for removing the human. If I had not let the renegades through, then they would not have... Commander, interrupted Paris. He is only a second grade. You need not explain your motives to him. You're right, 
said Grock, obviously feeling the guilt of having let the Renegade ship slip through the defenses and thus dooming the members of the wagon train. The room flew through the tube into the Earth's crust at incredible speed. Grock stayed in the corner for the rest of the trip downward. As the room slowed and the blue light subsided, he turned to his human guest. Are we here yet? asked Hank. Yes, we're here. Please proceed through. I want to waste no time, said Grok, his voice still upset. The wall slid open, revealing a carved open space deep within the earth. The area was three times as large as the extraordinary upper docking station, terrace upon terrace, like a mountain that had been mined away. Dwarfs, both male and female, were all over the area, working with elaborate equipment as if they were ants on an earthen mound. Take the second grade below, three days detention, ordered Grok as they took the boisterous dwarf away. Commander, said Paris, calling Grok over as the humans gazed outward. Hank could just barely make out their human words. Yes, Commander, I understand you're putting the second grade in detention. I must advise, however, that you are pushing the limits of the war by keeping these humans down here. They should not have heard about that important Earth date. You know we perimeter people don't hold the law like the others, Paris. If independent thinking is a sin, then I'm guilty of it. Better to be accused of that, in my opinion, than seeing the deaths of these humans. I don't mean to sound cruel, sir, but death might be simpler if the machine proved not to be 100% effective. It will be effective. Paris, it will, said Grock as he moved forward. Mr. Brady, you and the boy will come this way, he said, pointing to a five-story building to his left. We can expedite the solution to this problem. Are we really 500 miles below the earth? asked the boy. Yes, we are, said Grock seriously as he led them into the building. Hank was held inside an adjoining room to what Grock called the memory machine room. When he was brought into the blue tiled room, the boy was nowhere to be found. He looked around and then turned to Grok. The Murgendorf commander now seemed very nervous. Now where's the boy? You send him back outside already? Yes, the boy is done, mumbled Grok. Well, I want to see the boy, demanded the suspicious rider. That will not be possible, said Grok as several dwarfs came forward and fitted Hank into a scoop-like chair. They pushed a button and restraints appeared, preventing him from leaving the chair. Well, where the hell is he? yelled Hank, at his emotions in high gear. He's dead. He must be dead. You killed him. You killed him. Are you no good bastard? All you killers. Stop the procedure, ordered Grok as he turned to the medical personnel. The chair began to move upward with Hank Brady screaming hysterically at them. He was lowered into a glass tank, and the top of the tank descended upon him with the last words that Hank heard as the tank was sealed. The process had begun. A blaze of splitting green light twinkling in the pattern Bill Brady knew so well filled the tank. Seconds later, jolts of purple lightning scattered about him and he screamed as his mind went blank. Brady's consciousness left the tank for the void. Minutes later, he opened his eyes slowly. The cab driver was just beginning to make his turn into the traffic. Brady looked up at the church window and out at the people walking the sidewalk through Chinatown. He looked into the crowd for the troubling answer to his blackouts, and more importantly, for their meaning. Why were Grock and Paris so concerned about the date, August 31st, 1992? 
That day could signify a thousand different things. But it was clear, he thought, as he looked back inside the cab and down at the capsule, that the Mergendorf wanted that date held in the uttermost secrecy. The capsule held the answer. He picked it up with both hands, feeling the smooth glass as the taxi cab moved along in traffic. It was almost as if he were afraid to open the capsule because the contents could negate everything he believed about his blackouts. If that were in fact the case, he would doubt his own mental ability. Everything would become undone. Brady put his hand on the brass lid, gripping not only the handle of the capsule, but the handle to his own sanity. Brady yanked and pulled the handle backward, cracking the waxen seal and producing a sudden rush of air into the container. He reached inside and lifted out several newspaper clippings long before his time. They were mostly headlines about McKinley's assassination, the Spanish-American War in 1898, and others dating all the way back to the Civil War and Lincoln's death. These were rare clippings, in perfect condition. He wanted more, and reached back into the capsule, pulling out a number of folded sheets of white paper. Beneath the paper, and giving the capsule its weight, were a respectable number of gold coins. Brady, surprisingly, was not interested in the coins. He unfolded the five sheets of white paper, filled with the scraggly ink handwriting dated November 3, 1904. His face inflated as if he were a sunken wreck stranded on the ocean bottom, now to be raised to the sunlit surface. He read faster and faster, turning over the first page, the second, the third, the fourth, and then he scanned the last page. It was handwritten by Hank Brady. To whom it may concern... The Mergendorf, one of the six entrances to the Mergendorf, is located at Peace Mountain, near the Utah border. He set down the sheets of paper and looked out the cab as it traveled over to the Bay Bridge. Every few blocks he had seen police cars lined up toward the road and checking the oncoming vehicles. He wanted to go over to the hospital to find out Lorna's condition. He was afraid he'd be arrested by the police. He slinked down in the back seat and rested his head in his hands. Hey, you all right, pal? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm okay. Across the sparkling waters, he began thinking of the senseless act back at the gas station. His eyes filled as he glanced down at the newspaper clippings. Themselves, all acts of violence. Violence begets violence, he thought, as he leaned toward the driver. Pull over to the next phone booth. As soon as we hit Oakland, pal, we're already at $2, the driver told him, probably unsure that Brady would pay the total fare. I think I have enough to cover this, said Brady, pulling a coin out from the capsule. It'll cover all your expenses. Gold? Where the hell did you get a coin like that? Asked the driver as he bit into it. Gold, all right. And there's more. Just bring me where I want to go. Yes, sir. The driver pulled into a restaurant parking lot in Oakland and drove up to a telephone booth next to the building. Brady had already placed all the papers into the capsule and he carried it into the telephone booth. He set it down and dialed the operator, all under the watchful eye of the driver, trying to figure out this frenzied man with the glass capsule and the gold coins. The line was connected and it rang. Coffee's wife picked up the telephone in Virginia. Peggy, this is Bill Brady. Oh, Bill, God, Bob was worried sick. Why, what did he tell you? Well, he wasn't specific, but I know you're in some kind of trouble. Peggy.
Peggy, I need to talk to Bob. Peggy, listen carefully. You tell Bob this is very important. I'm on my way to Nevada. Nevada? Yes, Nevada, to a place near the Utah border called Peace Mountain. Does this concern Von Grunkle? No, this will make everything about Von Grunkle seem mild. It involves, he said as he thought about the advisability of informing her of his blackouts. Well, it's just important. You are all right, aren't you? Peggy, I never felt better in my life. You tell Bob what I said. Goodbye. He picked up the yellow pages and flipped through, looking for the number of Seton General Hospital. He dropped a coin in and dialed quickly. Seton General Hospital, answered the telephone switchboard operator. Yes, I would like to be advised on the condition of a 12-year-old girl. She was brought in for a gunshot wound, he said, the fateful words choking in his throat. One moment, please. Brady waited. First looking out at the highway, to the driver, and then down at the cigarette butts of the booth. His heart pounded as he prayed that Lorna had not died. Who is calling, please? Brady twisted his face around as if he were becoming another character. He spoke with great authority to the operator. Who is this? This is Captain Brady. I helped pick the girl up off the street. What do you mean by questioning? I'm sorry, Captain. I'm sorry. She's in surgery. Appears there's internal damage. And will she live? He asked as his eyes filled with tears. Yes, they said she will live, answered the woman. Oh, good, my God. I'll call back. What's your name? My name is Miss Ryan. Thank you, Miss Ryan. Thank you. Thank you very much, he said as he hung up again. He bent over and lifted up the capsule from under his arm, opening the door with his other hand. A man who had been waiting to use the telephone walked inside as Brady headed for the taxi. He stuck his head inside the window and the driver looked over. Is there a bus terminal around here? Yeah, a few miles in town. Good. Get me there right now, said Brady as he got back inside the cab. The driver spun the tires and brought the cab toward the center of Oakland. Join us next week as a noble experiment by Robert P. Fitton continues. This has been a production of Fitton Theater of the Words.